Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the third edition of Corner Kick slash Quarantine Kick. We are once again recording remotely from our in-home studios and not face-to-face, face-to-face, which is sad, but I have once again Caleb Rhodes. Hello. Nathan Strauss. Hello. And myself, Nick Govindan. And we're going to start today's show by talking briefly about some updates surrounding COVID-19, coronavirus, and some current events from the the beautiful game, which has come to a halt. We are almost going an entire calendar month, 30 days, without a ball being kicked. I think we're around 25 days somewhat right now. But I think the question becomes, Caleb Rhodes, how long can we keep having this discussion about when football should resume before we can realistically just say, well, do we have to just can the season, postpone the season, or null and void the season, and continue on with our footballing lives? I'm not sure. I mean, I feel like each time we have this conversation, there's some hope that you know the end will be closer in sight the next time we talk, and that certainly hasn't happened. Um, and I think one step that we've started to see teams taking, or leagues taking, is that the Belgian League uh, just crowned Club Bruges as champions with one game left in their regular season, um, and they canceled the rest of the season. And this, you know, quickly got a backlash from UEFA president, who said on German uh, TV that solidarity is not a one-way street. The Belgians and any others who might be thinking about it now are risking their participation in European competition next season. Um, so certainly, leagues are starting to take matters into their own hands in ways that UEFA, the governing body, is not happy about. Um, but to some extent, credit to the Belgians for actually like coming up with a policy and executing it. Yeah, and I think it's, it's, it was certainly a fair decision given that the champions were 15 points clear. Uh, and it, it definitely pays a road for what another league with a clear victor like the Premier League at this point in time uh, might end up doing. I definitely get the sense that there's a lot of cultural resistance coming from England. A lot of the top clubs have expressed uh, displeasure at the idea of ending the season early. And I think that the most likely outcome is that we end up seeing this season played to its conclusion whenever the leagues get cleared to resume play, whether that be in August or September at this point. Given that teams would also need to get a full preseason in, basically, uh, to get players back into match shape. Yeah, one note right, and though, on the difference between the Belgian League and the Premier League in terms of the winners is that Club Bruges had like mathematically won the regular season, while despite you know Liverpool being many many points ahead, they haven't mathematically clinched the title yet. Right, and there are more Champions League places up for grabs in the Premier League, and several other financial implications that we could drone on and on about. But I think Nathan, you hit on something in terms of just the footballing product from a physical level that you can't expect that these players uh, can come off the couch and present an entertaining product for the fans and for, uh, in like the sense of fair competition, right? You can't expect Mo, Mo Salah and Sadio Mane and Man- an old like Manchester City team to just wake up out of bed and go and like play their match on any given Sunday, right? These players are high caliber athletes and are going to need some time to get back up into tip-top match shape. So I think the question is, can we can we afford that like three-week grace period mid-season, quote-unquote, to 
propel them towards finishing the season or should we just scrap the season in general and say well fingers crossed we'll see you in September when the 2020-2021 season starts again and that's definitely what's going on in American sports leagues at least today actually pretty much right now while we're recording uh, the president is on a group call with the leaders of the various sports leagues and Vince McMahon for whatever reason and the the overwhelming suspicion is that the NBA and NHL are going to cancel uh, the remainder of their regular season and prepare for a restart into in whenever the virus you know subsides to a safe point. So it definitely, I think the the biggest worry right now has to be for uh, for player safety and figuring out you know European places prize money, all of that stuff can eventually be figured out. Um, and another thing that we could talk about is the fact that some clubs have been forced to furlough or fire their workers, um, because, like some smaller clubs as well. So this is definitely having an impact far beyond the product on the pitch. Right, not even smaller clubs. Liverpool furloughed many of their staff today in anticipation that they'll be able to rehire some of them when uh, a ball gets kicked again. But we are starting to see sort of the long-term effects of there being no product on our screens anymore. And, you know, a few weeks ago we talked about the issue of, like, wages and the fact that how are clubs going to deal with paying them out when they have no income themselves. And, you know, lo and behold, Barcelona, Juventus, I think Liverpool also, and probably many other teams, their players have taken, like, 70% pay cuts, um, which is pretty crazy. I think this just speaks to the the drop-down effects of COVID-19 lasting for a very long time in the West as it has. So I, I think as much uncertainty comes with COVID-19, you're going to see more and more long-term financial effects such as this. And I, I think we're going to we're going to see a lot of uncertainty even from the biggest clubs in in Europe, like European juggernauts with untapped financial resources that we might see we might see them start to waver a little bit, especially clubs that have like huge amounts of debt, like Barcelona, for instance, um, like a team like Bayern, who you know actually make a profit and actually have money in the bank, will be in a much better position to survive something like this than teams that have like a huge debt burden. Um, yeah, as well as teams that are publicly traded versus privately owned. Right. Like I, w- I wonder what Juventus's stock price is right now. Or Manchester United, for that. Depressing, depressing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we will bring you more updates in the world of soccer as this virus prolongs the uh, the pause of the beautiful game. But luckily for us, there is one beautiful country sandwiched in between Poland and Russia that is still having matches. In fact, their season just started. And regardless of the fact that COVID-19 is present in this country, Caleb Rose, the Belarusian Premier League has become the focus of the global gaze of soccer. Yes, as the Belarusian FA General Secretary Sergei Zardetsky told ESPN recently, there are currently no reasons to suspend the league. And this is despite on April 2nd, Belarus actually suspended all cultural, sporting, and scientific events. Um, the National Football League is you know, continuing on. He says that we're going to review the situation daily 
but he has full trust in their health care system and sees no reason to stop the league it's pretty amazing that the entire sporting world is now going to turn to Belarus and yeah I don't know it's pretty wild stuff it sort of feels like that movie with Sasha Baron Cohen where he went as a underground hooligan in the English league system it's that kind of environment but picture that as the only soccer that's being played in the entire world it's very very surreal it's uh it feels very Soviet the entire thing yeah I mean so one thing, as Nick mentioned, so their, their season just got started. They're just two or three games into their 30-game season, which it seems like will we'll be continuing, coronavirus or not. And this gives us an opportunity um, to really pick a team now and run with it for the rest of the year. So I was right. wondering if you guys... We are going to, if you want to call us bandwagon fans, by all means, call us bandwagon fans, as we are jumping on the only bandwagon in town, and I have... <laughs> certainly chosen to become a bandwagon fan in that sense as my new team that i am supporting for the perhaps the rest of 2020 and for as long as this coronavirus related pause goes on is the mighty fc bate borisov now you might think you know bate borisov or be familiar with bate from being trounced 6-0 in the champions league every season by a variety of different clubs <laughs> However, let me tell you that they have only once come in second in the domestic Belarusian league, and that was last season when they came in second to Dynamo Brest in the championship. Otherwise, they have won nine straight titles from 2010 to 2019, and they are the undisputed, undisputed great club of Belarus, and I will hear no if ands, or buts. So bring it on, Nathan and Caleb. So it's funny. So I've actually seen Bate play twice. Because they, they and Arsenal were in the same Europa League. Uh, I, they either played in like the round of 32 or in the group stage in one of these last two years. I believe they still have Alex Alexander Hleb, uh, who plays for them, who was a former Arsenal player in uh, when Arsenal had their sort of dry spell. Uh, he retired last year. That makes sense. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, Belarus is perhaps not the most well-known league. I would have been a fan of FC Godor, but uh, unfortunately they no longer exist. They play 70 miles away from Chernobyl, and when Liverpool had to play them in 2012, the entire squad was advised not to drink any of the water because there might be radioactive effects stemming from the Chernobyl leak. <laughs> so... I am pleased to announce my new affiliation with FC Shaktoyor Sologorsk, who currently sit in seventh place, and they have a long road ahead of them if they want to uh, rival the better-known FC Shakhtar of the Ukrainian league. I mean, I think I think they might surpass them um, in the you know public. Yeah, especially since Shakhtar aren't playing games, so I think there is a definite possibility. <laughs> Oh yeah, dude, people are going to get so confused by that, especially if the Belarusian League like, actually takes off. Um, <laughs> Nathan, uh, or Caleb, they're being featured on Corner Kick Media. There's no if ands, or buts that they're going to take off at this rate. That's true. And you know what else is going to take off? My new team, FC Torpedo Belaz. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly going to take off, but I think at rapid speeds underwater, perhaps. Yes. Um, 
they play in the Torpedo Stadium. They're sponsored by the city's machine building factory, Bell AZ. I don't know what machines they build, but I just love everything about this team. Don't you know, they the, build torpedoes? Probably. They're a perennial, you know, mid-table contender. They finished between fifth and seventh the last five years. But this year, this year I think could be their year. Um, we are currently in fifth place right now with two wins out of three games. That's pretty impressive. And we also, we have some great players on our team. We have the Brazilian Gabriel Ramos. Uh, we also have the midfielder Lipe Veloso, another Brazilian from FC Lviv, which is a... Uh, and my family is from Lviv. Excellent. It's a, it's a Ukrainian football club. So my point is, this is really the cosmopolitan team. Um, this... <laughs> This is a team that really gets you off your feet, and this is a team that has a kind of like heart and spirit. Um, and recently, they even made it to the third qualifying rounds of the Europa League in the 2016-17 year. So they have a bit of a European pedigree as well. So according to Caleb Rose, this might be the year of the torpedo. Yes, this is the year of the torpedo. The year of the torpedo. Hashtag it. Hashtag. Hashtag torpedo. Y-O-T. Year of torpedo. Yep. But I think we would be remiss if we did not talk about the current Belarusian champions, Dynamo Brest, who uh, sport beautiful maroon and blue away kits and uh, navy, almost Manchester City-esque home kits. And uh, they were the Belarusian champions, unseating the mighty Bate Borisov, my club, my new They're currently in ninth place. They're currently in ninth place. However, you know, they might be slow starters. You never know. They might be growers, not showers. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, their... <laughs> their recent success has all been dated back to 2013, in which they were renamed from FC Brest to Dynamo Brest. And with the spelling altered to D Y N A M O in 20, uh, 2014. To distinguish themselves from Dynamo Minsk, which of course is D I N A M O. And ever since their name change, they have won two titles. They have won the Belarusian Cup three times and won the top division in Belarusian football once. So it just goes to show you that a little rebranding goes a long way in uh, creating a successful club. I think maybe the most impressive thing that I've learned out of this whole saga with the, the Belarusian Premier League is how unknown the entire nation of Belarus is from a soccer perspective. Like, I would consider myself and all three of us to be pretty well-traveled in terms of our soccer knowledge and in terms of knowledge of players. It's incredibly rare that I can see an entire league and not know or recognize a single player like across the entire league. Now that Alexander Hled is gone, there's literally not a single player that I recognize. <laughs> the the well-traveled and well-known Alexander Hled, now that he's gone off into the night, we know absolutely no one in this league. But I think that's yeah. the beauty of it, right? I think in times of uncertainty, there are certainly new things and new trends that can emerge. And hopefully, like the Belarusian League, they've been picked up for TV rights by three separate like big national countries. So I think they're going to try and, and, and fill the gap somewhat that's been left by uh, other soccer that is not being played right now. 
Anyways, we will revisit the Belarusian Premier League if there is a Belarusian Premier League to revisit in due time once we come back to you on the airwaves. But for now, there is an interesting uh, little side discussion from our last episode of Corner Kick with Bill Gallagher uh, that we've decided to turn into an entire topic of discussion. And that is, if we were to pick one soccer-related story or player and put a bunch of Hollywood money, big-budget studio production value behind that story and create a Hollywood big super blockbuster movie, what story would we pick to get the biopic treatment? And uh, let's start with uh, Nathan Strauss. Nathan, what soccer story would you want to get the Hollywood treatment? The, the first one that comes to mind for me is the Leicester City story between their great escape, staving off relegation, to coming back and winning the Premier League um, and, and probably one of the biggest sporting upsets of all time. I think that it would be very compelling. Hollywood loves a good underdog, and Leicester were as good an underdog as any. That being said, certainly not without controversy, given some of the uh, the off-field incidents and mild allegations, or pardon me, allegations against some star players. But I think you would have a lead character that could be cast in Jamie Vardy, who obviously went on that terrific run that year. You could find someone to play Ranieri, perhaps uh, an elder statesman of the arts. And I definitely think that you could create a compelling narrative out of that entire season that culminates in them lifting a trophy. Wasn't there going to be a Jamie Vardy movie in production at some point? I'm pretty sure that like I'm not making this up. That Jamie Vardy, like the film rights to Jamie Vardy's life are out there. Yes. Uh, it's called Taking Shape. That's the name of the movie. No, I think that that is uh Oh no, sorry. That's what that's the movie the is doing. Of... <laughs> <laughs> Wait, the movie's called Taking Shape, or the movie is taking no. The shape. movie, the movie is Taking Shape. I have the exact same article up right now. I know exactly. <laughs> what you... <laughs> is it the BBC one? Yeah, I think it's called <laughs> Jimmy Vardy the movie. Okay, see, it's confusing because they put taking shape in, like, soft quotes so that it looks like it could be the title of the movie rather than I mean, just titling the article, Jamie Vardy movie is taking shape. Taking so. shape is, like, a good subtitle for a movie. So, anyways, I think this, so the Jamie Vardy story, I think if you want to make, like, a rags-to-riches athlete's story is definitely something that I would be interested in watching. Nathan, who would you cast to play Jamie Vardy? That's a great question, and I feel like it's such an, an interesting idea to try and cast uh, someone for this role, which requires a very, very specific kind of, like, build in my mind. Uh, you know, Jamie Vardy, to me, could be played by someone like Rob Gronkowski if he wanted to get into acting. Wait, but what? frankly, I would offer the role... <laughs> what? Wait, I... you mean to say Rob Gronkowski? Yeah, I'm, yeah. Look at his face. It's exactly the same as Rob Gronkowski. Yeah, look at the rest of him. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think we know which one of us won't become a casting director in the future. I would have Rob Lowe play Jimmy Vardy. You know, he's he's in great shape. He can do accents. He could definitely do the the method part of this job. 
Who would you cast? I think... Oh, Caleb, go ahead. I would cast Ricky Lambert. As in, like, the soccer player Ricky Lambert? Yes. <laughs> you know what? I don't think he's doing much else. I mean, Ricky Lambert, as I view it, is kind of the, like, Jamie Vardy prototype. Right, he was the bricklayer. Yeah. From Southampton, who went on to live his dreams in the Premier League. Yeah. So I think that he, he gets the... He understands the story. Right, he doesn't need to do a lot of that, like, research work that would go into uh, exactly. portraying Jamie Vardy to the best of your ability. He, he's already what lived if, some what of if it. Jamie Vardy just played it himself? Jamie Vardy could play himself. He could hire, like, a full-time acting coach to just sort of propel his story forward. For the I'm not sure if he really it. inhabits the role. I'm not going to lie. I think what you need to do is go back in time and snatch up Goodwill Hunting era Matt Damon when he still kind of like was a little skinnier, didn't mm. have as much muscle on him from doing the Bourne movies, and yep. you bring him to the present day and have him portray Jamie Vardy. Yes. And, I think and instead, of, instead of Jamie Vardy's catchphrase being check, get bang, it would be, how about dem apples? Boom. Money. I think oh, you need man. sort of like that scrawnier, that scrawnier little Rottweiler-esque performer. What would your picks be for a soccer movie? So I have a similar, maybe perhaps a little bit more global uh, premise for a biopic. But I think I would have the Lionel Messi rags to riches story. You'd start out in the dry, desolate, desolate town of Rosario, Argentina, and you'd cast some, like, little boy child actor from Buenos Aires or something. You'd have to do, like, serious casting direction in order to get this movie to work. And then it's, like, one of those shots where, like, uh, Kurt Russell is, like, the big sporting agent that comes over from Barcelona, or, like, Russell Crowe doing, like, a really bad Catalan accent. Comes over, <laughs> comes over from Barcelona, as the uh, as the director, and like you have the whole scene of like child Messi, and this like child actor, this Argentinian child actor, signing the contract on the napkin, and then you do like a cut. It's like fifteen years later, and then you cut to like a well known like I, I was thinking like Diego Luna, playing Lionel Messi, at like age twenty two, and you do like the Lionel Messi story and you log all of his career highs and lows. I feel like that might even be better suited for, like, an MJ-style 30 for 30 series. I was, where they thinking, document I was, thinking, these, like, I was thinking Netflix 10-episode miniseries. Mm. I will say, if you're looking for, like, a look-alike actor, so I went to Buenos Aires with my family a few years ago, and it was funny how many people in Argentina have such similar facial features as Messi. And I'm sure that you could find some Argentinian actor that essentially looks exactly like Messi and you could cast him for the role. I don't know his name yet, but I guarantee you that he exists and he's out there. Well, look up Diego Luna. Diego Luna, I think, is perfect. 
for playing like the adult Messi. Oh, yeah, I can definitely see that. Especially because Messi's given us so many different looks with his hairstyles throughout the years that you could really pick and choose a little bit. Mm, yeah, and he's Mexican, so you have that, like, South American connection or that Spanish connection. Because I think the thing is, it's going to be, like, a multilingual story, right? We're going to have to cast Ronaldo. We're going to have to cast Pep Guardiola. Mm. And that's the thing, though. I feel like for a lot of these soccer stories... It just seems like there's so much footage that we have of all of these people in real life that the documentaries that come out of this era of players, like the biopics for Ronaldo and Messi and whatnot, are going to have so many different like actual film to choose from, which is definitely different than when you're looking back at like documenting Pele or Maradona. Right. And like Messi and Ronaldo already have countless documentaries made about them. So I think it's just going to be what is going to be like the Jordan 30 for 30 documentary that ESPN are about to release. What is going to be like the Messi-Ronaldo equivalent of that? That in like 10 years time when Mbappe has just won the Champions League for the third time in a row. And the Messi camp is like, oh wait, we have to remind everyone about like what my legacy was all about. So they released this like comprehensive uh, award-winning quality documentary about his life. So... I think you're right in that, Nathan, that like there is going to be a bounty of footage to footage and stories and inside looks at these megastars in this like social media era. Caleb Rhodes, what is your football biopic that you would have us watch? So I'm not totally sure, but I did just finish Tiger King on Netflix, and I feel like so far our suggestions have really stuck to you know big figures and sort of well-known happy stories um, in soccer and I would want to do something that's a little more off the wall so I don't know if you guys have any idea of what like the equivalent to Tiger King would be in the soccer world well I think you have to look no farther than Lord Bentner the Tiger King of soccer himself I think we need to, uh, he is the Joe Exotic of the soccer world, and you can't tell me that, like, Lord Bentner and all of his crazy, kooky personal stories about his life would not make for a great, uh, miniseries or movie. Yeah, although I think it would be a little tragic, though, given his, like, his later arrests and whatnot. I think... He's definitely, uh, he definitely has this, this cult of personality that is just completely unearned given his performances on the pitch. And so I could definitely see a film being made that really gets to you know, his own delusions and whatnot. Right. I think you can make a similar movie about Mario Balotelli. Oh, yeah. I think that'd be a brilliant movie. You yeah. think about it, you could have like the the like incident where he sets off fireworks in his own bathroom you could have like the incident where he like broke into a women's prison just for fun you can you have that moment you can have like a whole subplot about his pig and him trying to sneak his pig into italy and then you have like you, you have that great footage of that when city were playing the la galaxy in preseason 
and it was like the 26th minute and he attempted like a cheeky roulette back heel when he was like two on one with the goalie and then immediately got subbed off no he wasn't like, even like two on one like the goal was like wide open yeah he'd like gotten past the keeper like all he had to do is pass it into the net and he, and he like, missed and he missed yeah yeah it would be titled why always me Oh, oh dude, always it's all me. coming together. Colin, the Mario Balotelli story. Well, and it would work so well too because you could, you know, play together these moments of like really high highs and really low lows, and then also like more recent stuff in his career, like dealing with the racism in Italy. Um, yeah, I I think that'd actually be like a really good. Yeah, film. I would watch it. I would watch that, and you could get like Michael B. Jordan to play Mario Balotelli. And have him do like an Italian, <laughs> an Italian accent. Yeah, actually, that's that's a really good idea. That's probably the most promising one of all of these. Yeah, yeah minus I would the agree with that. I would Jordan. Because like <laughs> what it has over the Lord Bentner thing is that you know Balotelli actually at like several different moments was like a relevant soccer star. No, yeah, like he ben- had that like ultimate moment at Euro twenty twelve. That yeah. was like the pinnacle of his career. He also had a couple assists when City won the league in that uh, on the last match day against. He QPR. had one assist that entire season, and that winning goal was that one assist. Yeah, and like he he had been talked up for so long, like he was like a Mourinho protege originally at Inter Milan before Mancini brought him to City. Um, so like he he was one of these kind of like enigmatic, mercurial rising stars that actually seemed. To kind of get on his way before he kind of became his own worst enemy. Right, he was like one of the first hyped up, super hyped up um, wonder kid teenagers who Mourinho was putting into the first team when he was 17, 18 years old. Yeah, but my point is like he actually like panned out a little bit or at points, unlike someone like Gail Kakuda, um, who somehow is still only 28 years old but was like super hyped up by like Carlo Ancelotti um early in his career and just like never did anything at all I thought Gail Kakuda was a Pokemon no Gail Kakuda was not a Pokemon <laughs> no I know is it, I thought Gail, didn't Gail Kakuda isn't he playing in La Liga right now uh he played for Rio uh two years ago or no, last year, but now he's at Amiens. In, uh, uh, is he, but, he, oh, he's what? French, right? He is French, yeah. Uh, yeah. But now he represents the Congo nationally. Uh, the, the DR Congo, because there are two. Yo, yeah, I think there's the... If you were to make a big-budget Hollywood soccer movie, you need a story with like a lot of highs and lows, like the Balotelli story. You know, right. something that I think we've seen so many sports, like sports movies, they follow such a formulaic structure of like rags to riches. And there's like some hardship in the middle that the team or the individual overcomes. And at the end, they win the big, big, they, they end up winning, winning it all, winning the big game. So I think in the Balotelli story, you have something kind of interesting where it's like this young kid did have it all at one point and then by his own means he sort of threw that all away right but i think it's also what's interesting is like things that brought him down it were not only himself but also like larger factors like the racism thing more recently right and so you have this like interesting interplay of like personal choice and responsibility versus sort of like 
broader structural things working against him. Um, and I think all of that makes for a very interesting story. Shall we segue into our new favorite segment, Corner Kick Retakes, where we give the people uh, matches that they should rewatch in this era of social distancing? Yes. Nick, do you want to start us off with your retake? I sure can start us off with my retake. In fact, I was just re-watching the highlights of this match earlier today. And it's a really, really interesting one. Because it comes at the beginning of the 2017-2018 season. And it is actually an Arsenal match. Nathan, can you guess which match I'm talking about? Liverpool 5, Arsenal 3? No. I'm talking, about, I'm talking about Arsenal 4, Leicester 3. The first match of Arsenal and Leicester's season. Leicester coming off of their year in the Champions League. Their foray into European soccer. Having not gone so well. And uh, them finishing kind of mid-table in the league. Looking to reestablish themselves as a brand in the Premier League. Um, and Arsenal looking to get a good foot in the door in the Premier League for their first match of the season. And this ended up being as crazy an opening weekend game as you could get with Olivier Giroud putting a nail in the coffin very, very late in the game. And um, I think it was like around the 84th or 85th minute. Arsenal 4, Leicester 3. Um, in opening weekend games, which can sometimes be cagey affairs, this was one that everyone should go back and rewatch just because of how crazy and actually quality soccer it was as Leicester City were still co- sort of at the peak of their powers. Was this Lacazette's debut? Yeah, Caleb, we actually watched this game at Lear. Caleb, do you want to hit us with your retake? Yes. Uh, I'm going to bring us back to La Liga match day 13 on November 29th, 2010. Do you, do you guys have any sense of what that time in your league? This is 5-0. I imagine this is 5-0. Yes, you are exactly correct. This is when Barcelona obliterated Real Madrid 5-0 um, at home in El Clasico. And looking back at the starting lineups for this game just makes me so nostalgic. So Barcelona had like Valdez in goal, Alves at right back, Puyol and Pique at center back, Abidal left back, that incredible midfield of Busquets, Iniesta, and Xavi, and then that front three of Villa, Messi, and Pedro that would then power them to a Champions League title at the end of the year. Meanwhile, this was like no slouch of a Madrid team either. This was Madrid under Mourinho. Um, this was when they had Ronaldo, Ozil, Di Maria, and Benzema um, as the forward line. And this game was just so excellent for so many reasons. Xavi's first goal in like the ninth minute, he flicked it up over the back of his head, or I guess over the over to the front of his head before tapping it in, but he also in that process had like lobbed Casillas. Pedro scored, David Villa scored twice. Um, and then at the end, we <laughs> sent on uh, we sent Jeff- on Boya and Kirkic back and when Jeff he was Ren. still and Jeffren. Um who both at the time were like promising-ish youth players. And of all people in this game, uh, Jeff Wren scored with an assist from Boyan in the 90th minute. And then just a few minutes later, Ramos would get sent off in typical El Clasico fashion. 
But I think one thing that really sticks out about this game is that in a 5-0 win versus Real Madrid from Barcelona, Messi did not score any of the goals. Um, and I think that's very unsurprising. That would be a really unsurprising result today. But back then, when Barcelona were really at their height, Messi, in his like full flow under Guardiola as a false nine, really was just facilitating and could play any role. So he had two assists in that game. But I think it says a lot that he didn't have to score for Barcelona to win 5-0 versus Madrid. Yeah, there's a pretty compelling argument to be made that that team or the MSN team that would follow a few years later were probably the best teams that I've ever see, seen play, uh, given that I didn't really get to see the Invincibles uh, of Arsenal play when I was little. Like, just that, that brand of soccer, it was just amazing. Yeah. Um, I, I, think, I think this team was better than the MSN team because I think the midfield was just... Th this was the perfection of midfield-powered soccer, right? Which I think ultimately ends up being the best soccer. And MSN was, um, you know, a different formulation that was way more sort of like counterattacking and forward-based. Right, but MSN was very top-heavy in the glamour of that team. And like while the midfield was very good and industrious, and I think that was like the Rakitic and Iniesta-powered sort of yeah. tireless Barcelona midfield, MSN was very much focused on how can we get the ball into the back of the net in the coolest way possible. Yeah. Well, keeping with that uh, idea of Madrid getting tonked, my corner kick retake is from last spring, and it is Ajax 4, Real Madrid 1 at the Bernabeu. And unfortunately, this is actually a match that I didn't get to watch all of live. I, was, I had a work shift during the first half, but when I checked my phone after halftime, I immediately uh, began to watch. And this was one of the best performances that I've ever seen by Ajax. They had lost the first leg of the uh, of this tie. This was in the Champions League round of 16 when Ajax were still pretty much massive underdogs. And they had lost the first leg 2-1 at home. But Ajax came out in this game at the Bernabeu where few teams, few people, if any, expected them to win and came out and scored four just beautiful goals. Like every single goal they scored in this game was a screamer capped off by Lassie Schoen's free kick from well outside the box and towards the sideline that really punctuated this victory. Ajax took a new brand of pressing and beautiful soccer to Real Madrid and left the Bernabeu faithful stunned. And this ended up paving the road for them to get all the way to the Champions League semifinals where they were knocked out with the last kick of the game against Spurs. Yeah. I, uh, I think this was an Ajax team that certainly is going to be remembered for producing some of the world's most promising young talents that we have, uh, we have started to sort of see prop themselves up at bigger markets around the world. Specifically, uh, Delict, who is now a fixture of the Juventus defense, and Frankie de Jong, who has uh, sort of affixed himself to that number six position in Barcelona's midfield. So this is a, uh, a victory that will live long in the annals of the great history of Ajax. I actually have one more retake. 
that I thought about, it, it's not like a particularly monumentous moment uh, in soccer for either of these two teams, but I do want to cast your minds back to a hot, smoltery evening in Brazil in 2014, uh, and it is between, it is the uh, round of 16 match between Belgium and the USA. And I think if you want to see sort of one man power his way through a game, you can look no farther than Tim Howard, perhaps putting on the performance of a lifetime in this round of 16 match. Uh, he faces a Belgium attack powered by a young Kevin De Bruyne, Romelu Lukaku, Marwan Fellaini, players like uh, Nasser Chadli, um, and a young Divock Origi, who was sort of like making his first appearance on the global stage. And Tim Howard denied an ungodly amount of opportunities from this talented Belgium side. And we saw a young uh, cameo appearance from Julian Green, who we thought would be a promising U.S. player going forward. Unfortunately, it has uh, potential has not really ripened to what we thought it was going to be. But I think just in terms of like, 120 minutes of action and of incredible goalkeeping. And I think we haven't given defense um, or defensive players much love in these corner kick retakes. Tim Howard's performance in that round of 16 tie certainly is one to revisit. Yeah, I mean, Belgium had 39 shots in that game with 17 of them on target. Like, they were pummeling us. But I think what makes that game kind of like most or a little sad or depressing in my mind is that there was a point in extra time when Chris Wondolowski could have oh god and and he was really really damn close to the goal and he just missed and part of me knows that Belgium probably deserved to win this game in regular time like three or four one but another part of me thinks that the way the game actually occurred we could have really put this quote-unquote golden generation down and got into the quarterfinals of the right. world. Right, there's some like crazy what-if scenario, and maybe we can do some what-if scenarios on a, a future podcast. I think that would actually make for an entertaining episode. But there was like, a crazy what-if scenario where uh, Chris Wondolowski puts that ball into the back of the net and the U.S. advance uh, into the quarterfinals of the World Cup. Yeah, I mean, I just remember that game as being some of the most stressed that I've ever been as a soccer fan because Belgium really did have good scoring chances pretty much every like four or five minutes in that game. I was also watching it at 3.30 in the morning in, uh, in Finland at the time, and so that probably added to it. But it does seem like the round of 16 has been this barrier for the United States, at least in the last 10 years. They went out to Ghana in 2010, and then they were so close to being able to pull off that upset against Belgium in 2014. And then, of course, 2018 was null and void. So, I, yeah, I do think that we could do some what-ifs on our next episode of Corner Kick. Could be a fun way to play out some dream scenarios in our heads. Wait, want to hear another crazy stat from this game? So, the U.S. actually out-possessed Belgium and out-passed Belgium both in terms of total passes and pass accuracy. No, yeah, I want to stress that like the U.S. put up a valiant fight against Belgium, and they were managing to get themselves in good positions, as like stated by the Wondolowski effort that he missed. 
but it would have just been such a monumentous moment if Tim Howard's efforts were not, like, going in vain, I guess, and the U.S. were able to progress against, as Caleb said, the golden generation of Belgium soccer with all these talented players who were sort of just about hitting their prime. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like with, with U.S. men's national team soccer, there's this weird sense that, like, a country of our size and wealth and power has this, like, weird relationship with soccer and that we always seem to be the underdogs. And in some ways, I feel like that sort of tension and that discordance is what prevents us from having some, like, truly, truly breakthrough moments just because, in a weird way, I don't feel like we deserve them. Um, <laughs> but I, I think I think this game kind of like illustrates that tension like pretty well. And with that discussion of the USA versus Belgium, that will end this segment of Corner Kick Retakes for the day, and that will bring our podcast to an end for the day. So once again, uh, we will bring you more updates uh, about soccer news around the globe when we are able to, and when news uh, drops itself at our feet. And but for now, I have been Nick Linden. I'm Caleb Rose. Nathan Strauss. And we will see you all next time. Stay safe. Wash your hands. <laughs>